0: Welcome to Time Travelling Teamp, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha.
1: And I'm Paddy. Today we'll be catching up with Ben and Polly as they have their first adventure in the TARDIS, in The Smugglers. We'll be discussing the Doctor, the Companions and the Villains and giving our thoughts and a score out of 5 for the story as a whole.
0: We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story, so to join on the discussion you can check us out at time Teamp. that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us at teamproductions.com. Now though, on with the story recap.
1: Episode 1 Ben and Polly stare around in amazement at their surroundings, but the Doctor rebukes them for trespassing into the TARDIS. He explains the nature of the ship to them, and informs them that they are now stranded with him due to the fact that he doesn't have directional control of the TARDIS's navigational system. The ship lands in what appears to be a coastal cave, but Ben thinks it's all a hoax, and after ensuring that it is safe outside, the Doctor lets them out so they can see for themselves. Polly is enjoying their surroundings a bit more than her colleague, who is more concerned with getting back to the barracks before he's declared AWOL. Polly says that from the geography in the area, they are more than likely in Cornwall, and after overhearing this, the doctor chuckles to himself that she may be right as to their location, but not their time period. He follows along after them as they make their way to the clifftops. At the top of the cliff, Ben sees a church in the distance and once again states his belief that they are in their own time. He says that they should be able to board a train to take them to London, a fact which the doctor finds amusing. They arrive at the church and after investigating the architecture, the doctor says that they are anywhere between the 16th and 19th centuries. As Ben is again refuting this, a man emerges from the church brandishing an old flintlock pistol, but puts it away when he sees they pose no danger. He asks them some questions about where they came from and once he is satisfied that they are merely travelling through, he offers them some food and a drink inside. As they follow on, the doctor confirms to Ben and Polly that by the man's clothes, they are in the 17th century. Inside the church vestry, the man asks them if they have noticed any ships near the coast or encountered anyone else on the road. After they say they haven't, he asks them if they are familiar with any associates of either a man named Avery, who seems to have an infamous reputation but has been dead for a long time, or someone named Pike, which the group again denies. The man's temperament is unusual as he gives out to Ben when he asks the question, but he is perfectly civil to the doctor and Polly, who he has mistaken for a boy due to her clothes. He introduces himself as Joseph Longfoot, and his mood is improved drastically when the doctor notices and resets a couple of his dislocated fingers. Longfoot says that he cannot offer them shelter for the night, but directs them to a nearby inn, and he informs them that the tide has come in, cutting them off from the tardis. He advises them to be cautious in their travels, and before they leave, he entrusts the doctor with a riddle, but does not hint to its purpose. After they leave, Longfoot goes back inside, but he is followed by a large bald man wielding a knife, who has been spying on their conversation. At the inn, Jacob Cooper, the innkeeper dispatches the stable by Tom to carry a message to Longfoot and then goes back inside just as the travellers arrive. He is initially hostile towards them, but his move improves when they mention that they were sent by Longfoot. He goes to get them food and fresh clothes as they arrive just after a storm has started. Given the locals' mistrust of strangers, the doctor says that it might be best for Polly to play into the assumption that she is the boy, and that he will hopefully be able to return them to their own time soon. Back at the church, Longfoot is drunk and he encounters the bald man, whose name is Cherub, and appears to be an old shipmate of him from the ship, the Black Albatross. Cherub demands that Longfoot give him the location of Avery's gold so that he can deliver it to their captain, Pike. He asks if Longfoot told the travellers anything about the gold, but Longfoot smashes a cup over his head and tries to get away, but Cherub kills him by throwing his knife into his back. He then sets off for the inn to see what the travellers know. Back at the inn, the travellers see that Longfoot's advice was well-founded as the common room is full of rough-looking customers who keep appraising the travellers. Suddenly, Tom returns and informs Cooper that Longfoot is dead. Cooper dispatches him to inform the local squire so that they can use his service as a magistrate during the investigation. While this is happening, Cherub arrives and demands that the doctor come with him so he can reveal what Longfoot told him. Ben and Polly try to intervene, but they are accosted by several of the other patrons who are crewmates of Cherub. They take the doctor away, leaving Polly to cry for help for the injured Ben. Cooper tells her that the squire will arrive shortly to ascertain the situation, but Polly is more concerned about the recovering the doctor. The squire arrives and much to Polly's frustration begins to question her about her and the origins of the others. Ben comes to and together he and Polly say they won't give him any information until he helps save the doctor. The squire then announces that he is taking them into custody for the murder of Longfoot. On the Black Albatross, the doctor is introduced to Captain Pike who demands to know what Longfoot told him or else he will torture him with his signature hook. Episode 2 The doctor denies that he was told anything by Longfoot, who Pike reveals served with him under Captain Avery. Pike says that Longfoot has hidden something that belongs to them and they believe the doctor knows its location. Again he denies knowing anything and Cherb threatens to torture the information out of him. The doctor decides to use flattery against Pike and offers to talk to him like the world-wise and well-traveled gentleman that they are. Cherb is reluctant to play along with this but Pike threatens him and so he hangs back. The doctor then suggests that if he helps them recover whatever Longfoot stole from them, then he should be entitled to a share from it as a reward. Pike impatiently agrees to this and demands the doctor to tell them what they want to know. Before the conversation begins though, Pike's cabin boy Jamaica arrives and tells them to ro- a rowboat is approaching. Cherub is sent to see who the new arrival is and Jamaica is told to take the doctor to the galley. Meanwhile, Ben and Polly are in jail and each are reacting very differently to their current situation, with Ben being more of the pessimistic of the two. Polly sees a rat in the corner of the jail cell and cries out in fright, attracting the attention of Tom the stable boy, who has been set to guard them. He informs them that there is no proof to support their claims of innocence, and so Polly decides to use the superstition of the age against their captors and begins to fashion a doll out of straw from their beds. Once it is completed, she pretends to go into a trance whilst Ben calls to Tom for help. Ben tells him the truth about them, that they are apprentices to a very powerful warlock and the doll is an effigy of the person keeping them imprisoned. Tom says he is only following the instructions of the Squire and Cooper and begs Ben to save him. Ben says that the spell only remains intact if they are imprisoned and so Tom reluctantly lets them out. Once they are free, they decide to begin their search for the Doctor at the church. Once there, they search the church and find the crypt but find no clues as to the Doctor's whereabouts. Ben says that maybe he went back to the TARDIS and so they decide to go back to the beach. As they are leaving, a section of the wall starts to open and they take cover so they can observe whoever comes out of the secret tunnel. A cloaked figure emerges and the duo attack him, knocking him unconscious. Polly says that maybe this man is the actual murderer and suggests that she go and fetch the squire whilst Ben remains on guard. He tells her, just as she leaves, not to mention the secret tunnel just yet. On the ship, Cherub meets the new arrival, Cooper, who says he has valuable information for Pike. Cherub brings him to the captain's cabin and once there offers Pike a partnership in the smuggling operation that is being run by himself and the squire and formerly Longfoot. Pike says that he will go meet the squire personally as he is wary of the offer being a trap and that Cooper is to remain on the ship until he comes back. He sends for the doctor so that Jamaica can guard them both. He also leaves his hook behind so as not to draw suspicion on himself. They arrive at the squire's home where Pike reminds Cherub that they are meant to be honest merchants so that they can learn as much as possible about the smuggling ring and potentially clues to the location of Avery's treasure. The squire arrives and asks where Cooper is. His mood is vastly improved when they tell him that he is currently on board their ship taking inventory of their many valuable goods and they celebrate their new partnership with a drink. As they discuss the logistics of delivery, Polly is ushered in and she identifies Cherb as one of the men that took away the doctor. However, the squire doesn't believe her accusations and Pike and Cherb use their new good standing with the squire to manipulate him into thinking that Polly and Ben are revenue officers and that they should go back to the church to capture him as well. The squire agrees and Cherb gags Polly as they set off. On board the ship, Cooper is informing the doctor about Ben and Polly's arrest for the murder of Longfoot. When the doctor reveals Pike is looking for Avery's treasure, Cooper tells him that Pike will raise the entire area to the ground in order to find it and the doctor suggests sending word back to the squire to inform him about Pike. They then come up with a plan to try and escape. Back at the church, the intruder has come to and informs Ben that his name is Josiah Blake, a revenue officer for the king. He tells him that he is currently on a mission to expose a smuggling ring in the area and that the secret tunnel he emerged from is connected to the series of caves that leads back to the beach ben is delighted to hear this and takes off to reconnoiter leaving blake tied up in the crypt ben returns and blake demands to be released but ben is too excited due to the fact that they can now get back to the TARDIS. his good mood is cut short however when the squire's party arrives and holds him at gunpoint episode three ben echoes polly's statements that cherub is the one that kidnapped the doctor but the squire refuses to listen and orders him to be quiet. Blake hears the commotion and calls out for aid. The squire sees that it is Blake and Pike tells him to free him so that he can arrest Ben and Polly for the murder of Longfoot, thereby taking suspicion off themselves. Blake says that he has been dispatched to arrest the smugglers in the area and not murderers, but Cherub and the squire tell him that they could be smugglers as well. Blake agrees to take them away with him and he leads them outside using the squire's pistol. The squire then lays the two pirates outside where their constant flattery makes him show them his hidden caches of contraband inside the specially rigged sarcophagi in the church graveyard. While the squire and Pike discuss the logistics of delivery and payment, Cherb slits away unnoticed. Back on the ship, the doctor and Cooper have begun a tarot reading using a pack of playing cards as a part of their escape plan. Jamaica, who is deeply superstitious, asks for a reading and while the doctor is preparing the deck, Cooper knocks him out. The doctor says that they will need to rescue Ben and Polly, and Cooper says that he will most likely be with the Squire, who also needs the information about Pike's true nature. In the stables of the inn, Blake releases Ben and Polly, saying that he trusts them more than he does the Squire. He suspects the Squire of being in charge of the smuggling ring, but he has no proof as of yet. He turns down the travellers' offers for help, and says that he requires the aid of soldiers due to the presence of the Squire's new allies. He says that he needs them urgently, as he feels there will be a smuggling drop at some point over the next few nights, and if he can stop it, then he will have the proof he needs. Polly wonders what the pirates could want with the Doctor and they are discussing his merits and his crafty nature when he arrives, much to the delight of Ben and Polly. Cooper follows on after him and Blake tries to apprehend him for being an accomplice of the squire. Cooper, thinking that he has been led into a trap, draws a pistol to keep the group at bay and says he is only sparing the Doctor's life as he helped him escape from the ship. He flees, followed by Blake. On the ship, Pike beats Jamaica for his failure to guard the Doctor and Cooper, but Jamaica says that he overheard their plans to go find the squire. Knowing that his own plans are now in jeopardy, Pike decides to launch a preemptive raid whilst he and Cherub will go to find Avery's gold. He then kills Jamaica with his reattached hook and calls for Cherub, who he notices is no longer with them. In the stables, the doctor theorizes that Pike's next move almost exactly as the pirate captain stated. Blake says that this would most likely lead to a confrontation between the pirates and the smugglers, which might just buy him enough time to get his troops that he needs. After he leaves, Ben tells the others about the tunnel down to the TARDIS, but the doctor says he can't leave as he feels responsible for any harm that may befall the village and feels obligated to protect it. The young duo say that they wouldn't stand a chance against Pike's crew, but the doctor reveals that Longfoot gave him the clue to Avery's treasure, a fact that would stop Pike from harming him until he got what he wanted. This will also buy them time for Blakes to arrive with the troops. They then leave for the church. Meanwhile, Cooper arrives at the Squire's home and informs him about Pike's identity and purpose. This fact changes the squire's mind, who was previously reluctant to fight against the notorious Pike. They plan to lay an ambush for Pike's men and they make their own way to the church to try and locate every treasure. The travellers arrive at the graveyard and try to work out the riddle given to the doctor. Polly and Ben laugh at the humorous causes of deaths written on some of the graves, which makes the doctor realise that the clues in the riddle point to the location within the crypt. Once there, they locate various markers from the riddle. As they are searching, Cooper and the squire arrive at the crypt and the former demands that the doctor assist them in finding the treasure or he will kill Ben and Polly, an intention the squire is reluctant to agree with. As the two smugglers argue, Cherub sneaks in wielding a knife and a gun. He throws his knife into Cooper's back, killing him, and Polly screams as the shot rings out. Episode 4 The bullet hits the squire in the shoulder, but Cherub manages to retrieve his knife before the doctor and Ben can intervene. He demands to know where the treasure is and threatens Polly unless the doctor helps him. Left with no other choice, the doctor tells him the riddle, and Cherb reveals that the clues are not relating to markers, but in fact the names of former crew members of Avery's ship. The wounded squire says that Cherb won't succeed as the treasure is cursed, but he's ignored and Cherb again threatens Polly. Meanwhile, Pike and the rest of the crew come ashore to launch their raid. Pike sends one of the men to locate Cherub whilst he leads the rest of them to the church. He orders the men to take the hidden caches back to the beach whilst he goes and searches the crypt. Two of the pirates are dispatched to carry the cargo down to the beach and once there they notice the TARDIS standing at the entrance to the cave. After investigating around the TARDIS they venture further into the cave itself. Pike arrives in the crypt and Cherb tries to convince him that he was trying to find the treasure for him but Pike doesn't believe him. The two pirates start to duel and the doctor tells Ben to take Polly to the TARDIS. They are reluctant to leave but the doctor says that if they leave they can't be used as hostages to force his hand. They leave but Ben says that he will be back in 15 minutes if there is no sign of the doctor. Despite all of his underhanded tricks, Cherb is killed by Pike, who then turns his attention onto the Doctor, who says that he was always intended to help Pike, but he first needed to make sure that his friends were safe. However, he says that his terms for helping Pike have now changed. He will help Pike recover the treasure so long as Pike agrees not to attack the village. The Squire thanks him for speaking on behalf of the village, and recants his previous illegal activities. Pike says that once his crew gets a taste for blood, there is no stopping them, leading the Doctor and the Squire to call his abilities as a leader into question. This angers Pike, who says that he is complete control of his crew and will prove it after. Ben and Polly Meanwhile are making their way through the tunnel when Polly stumbles and falls. When Ben tells her that they don't have too much further to go, she says that she will go into the TARDIS herself whilst he goes back to rescue the Doctor. She doesn't get too far before she is accosted by the two pirates, but Ben returns after hearing them go after her and together they dispatch one of their opponents. However, the other draws his sword on them. Doctor Meanwhile tells Pike the riddle, and then points him to a loose flagstone that intersects the locations of the names written on the walls. Pike reaches down into the hole and finds the treasure. However, his joy is short-lived when he hears the sounds of gunfire coming from the graveyard. Blake has arrived back and dispatched a squad of militia to the church, and they fall on the pirates, killing several of them. Meanwhile, Blake himself has led a second group through the caves, and he kills the pirate about to kill Ben and Polly. He then leads his men up towards the crypt with Ben in tow after he tells Polly to go back to the TARDIS. They arrive to find the last of the pirates fighting against the militia, being egged on by a now deranged Pike who swears vengeance on the Doctor. The squire intervenes to help save the Doctor, allowing Blake to shoot Pike. The rest of the pirates lay down their arms and the Doctor and Ben quietly retreat through the tunnel. They then make their way back to the TARDIS and the ship dematerializes. with the two newcomers wondering where and when they will land next. Suddenly, the temperature in the TARDIS drops drastically and the Doctor draws their attention to the external view screen, saying that they have arrived at the coldest place in the world. End of the story.
0: So thank you, Patty, for that great summary, as always. And thank you. now we will move on to the trivia.
1: Yay, I get to stop talking now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the air date for the smugglers was the tenth of September to the first of october, nineteen sixty six. The writer for this story is Brian Hales. This is the second story we've seen from Brian, the previous one being the Celestial Toymaker. And there are still four more to come. So we get to see more of Brian's work in the future. The director for the story is Julia Smith. Julia is the second female director we've seen in Doctor Who, the first being Paddy Russell. And apparently she was the only other female director at the BBC in the mid-60s. It was just the two of them. Mm. Julia described William as remarkable. And said that he once went raving mad when she tried to get him to press a particular button on the TARDIS console. And was very much, but if I do that, then this will happen, and this will happen, and what are you doing? I can't press that button. She said that he'd committed himself to the character and acquainted and acquainted himself with the machinery. Which we've kind of discussed before that Hartle was very much, this is what this button does, this is what that button does. And I love the idea that he'd get all sort of like... <laughs> With people try to tell him to press a different button that he knows doesn't do the thing they want him to do.
1: But I love that, like, because, like, as we've seen, like, in, you know, certain other sci-fi things, uh, shows and movies, it's just you press the same six buttons on a thing and various different stuff happens. I love the fact that he decided to have his own continuity as to what each button and what each lever on the ship would do.
0: Yeah, which is great part of the reason julia smith was chosen to direct this story was her familiarity with the cornish coast where the story was filmed so this is actually the first doctor who story to have any significant location shooting outside of london Mm. obviously dalek invasion of earth had a lot of location shooting across london but that was in london itself and this is the first time we're going outside and they're going to the cornish coast yeah for for
1: for like an extended period of time
0: We'll see one more story from Julia in the future. The Underwater Menace. Julia passed away back in 1997. This is sadly another story of the Hartnell era that is completely missing. So again, as we have said in the past, thank you very much to the crew over at Loose Cannon. Without whom we would not be able to enjoy the show in the way that we have. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, some footage has survived. And you know we saw this when we were watching yeah. the Loose Cannon stuff. The reason it survived, though, was because ABC, which is the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, oh, is th-
1: Was it? not The American crowd, the American? Crowd? No,
0: it's the Australians. That's ABC true. is also an American company, but this was the Australians. Oh, okay. They edited out certain clips from the story, believing it to be too violent.
1: Yeah, so the clips that they've edited out are Cherub throwing his knife, which is used three times, I think. Longfoot's death, Cooper's death. And parts of the fight between Pike and Cherub. That's my memory as to the stuff that's been edited out for being
0: violent. Yeah, bear in mind. It was also Cherub throwing his nice knife and stabbing someone in the back. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Specifically. No, th- yeah, I, uh, yeah,
1: I missed that part, yeah.
0: Yeah. So it's interesting that we can now see those clips because they were deemed to be too violent for Australian television. Though this is the first story of season four... It was actually filmed as part of season three's production block. And Doctor Who has done this a Mm. number of times because they want to sort of ease the pressure on the beginning of the next season by already having a story in the can, as it were. Yeah. So this was actually filmed directly after the War Machines and then they went on break before the next season started.
1: Did we sort of adopt that methodology when we were doing this? (laughs)
0: perhaps a little bit this is the only televised Doctor Who story apparently to have no incidental music whatsoever we've spoken in the past how some stories didn't have any new incidental music they reused stuff that was pre-existing but this story has none unsurprisingly several members of the cast and crew suffered from seasickness when making this story (laughs) apparently the boat scenes didn't sit well with everybody (laughs) annika wills has named this her and michael craze's favorite story largely due to the fact that they were on location in cornwall and it was lovely and also because she got to wear breeches and she kind of hoped polly would get to wear them a bit more (laughs) michael craze was injured during the production for the story Uh, he fell through a trap door which had not been secured properly fortunately it was only a minor injury to his right shoulder though but that could have been really dangerous like randomly falling through a trapdoor that you didn't know was yeah because
1: like like you see like uh like whenever you hear someone falling through a trapdoor, you immediately think of del boy and only fools and horses with like the but that was a planned fall like but it's whenever you see someone like you know not paying attention they fall off a stage or they fall through a gap in something it's like oh that's gotta hurt
0: interestingly enough Polly is the only female character in this entire story have we not seen that before no we have not All right. because usually we have well in the first 16 hmm. you'd Barbara and Susan yeah so we may have had Barbara and Susan being the only female characters but we never just had one female character
1: yeah no I'm just actually I'm, I'm scanning back through them in my head now and there's always been a female character uh, at least one female character uh, like yeah that's, pre- that's pretty interesting
0: Yeah it doesn't happen All that often I do know of one other story Off the top of my head Planet of Where Evil? there's only one Female character And that's the Santarin experiment
1: Um, the, No I think there's a few others Like during uh, The Tom uh, Era I think the uh, Pyramids And um, Planet of Evil Have only One female character In them I think
0: Just Planet Yeah Actually yeah Now you think about it A lot of Sarah's stuff only has Sarah in them.
1: Hmm. That's in the future.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, on to our cast. Yeah. So, as Captain Pike, not that Captain Pike, the Doctor Who Captain Pike, Mm -hmm. we have Michael Godfrey. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit from Michael. His other acting credits include Emergency Ward 10, Zed Cars, The Message, The Second Best Secret Agent in the Whole Wide World, which is the weirdest title for something, (laughs) And the March of the Peasants. Michael passed away back in 1977. Cherub is played by George A. Cooper. Again, this is only Doctor Who acting credit for George. His other acting credits include Heartbeat, Grange Hill, The New Avengers, Dixon of Doc Green, Billy Liar, and again, Z Cars. Mm. I think that's probably the most British, like, list of things that you could be Jesus,
1: heartbeat of all things.
0: (laughs) You know, every time I read the word heartbeat or someone says the word heartbeat, I get the theme tune stuck in my head. Same.
1: Absolutely the same.
0: George passed away back in 2018. The Squire is played by Paul Whitson Jones. This is the first of two Doctor Who acting credits for Paul. We will see him again in The Mutants. His other acting credits include The Incredible Adventures of Sir Brainstorm, The Avengers, Wild Wild Women, The Mask of the Red Death, and Zed Cars. A lot of Zedcars Cars on the board today. Yeah, we absolutely. are 3 for 3 so far. Absolutely. Paul passed away back in 1974. Cooper is played by David Blake Kelly, whose name was originally Dermot Blake Kelly. Mm. But he changed it to David this is the second and final Doctor Who acting credit for David. We previously saw him in the Chase, where he played Captain Briggs. This could be where you got Briggs from.
1: Possibly. Maybe just the name yeah.
0: was in your head because Cooper played Briggs.
1: Possibly, yeah.
0: David's other acting credits include Four for Four with Zedcars, The Doctor's Emergency War Ten, All Aboard, and the Mail Van Murder. David passed away back in 1993.
1: I think possibly changing his name from Dermot to David might have been just so he would be a bit um, less ethnic. Yeah. yeah. Also,
0: it helps in a, if you're an actor and people can pronounce your name. Absolutely. Just for everyone's benefit, there are an equal number of vowels and consonants in the name Dermot.
1: Yeah. So Dermot is spelled D-I-A-R-M-U-I-D.
0: Lastly, as Blake, there is John Ringham. This is the second of three Doctor Who appearances for John. We previously saw him as Clatoxel in the Aztecs. Which I knew he looked familiar, but obviously because we're only looking at screenshots most of the time, it was hard to identify.
1: And as well, he doesn't have half his face painted uh, red or dark. whatever. Yeah, and he's was. standing up straight.
0: And yeah. <laughs> a yeah. difference as well. we'll see John again in Colony in Space.
1: Cool. I don't think I have any other trivia notes from my own thing, other than the fact that I got a massive muffus Treasure Island vibe off this whole story. (laughs) 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 Oh, God. So that's the trivia out of the way with thank you once again Trish for all those wonderful pieces of information both random and not so random (laughs) (laughs) now uh, the main focus of the podcast is the discussion point which is we discuss the doctor the companions the supporting characters and then the villains and then we'll lead into our overall scoring of it so as always we start with the fantastic cape wearing man himself the doctor so trish uh, how would you go first and you give us our thoughts or sorry you give us your thoughts <laughs> <laughs>
0: um i do love that cape i love that he has stuck with that cape hmm. and it's now his sort of traveling cloak it's yeah great, I love it. this story starts off with really you know a sort of hearkening back to previous stories in that the doctor is very angry that Ben and Polly have burst in. Yeah, understandably so. Although you didn't lock the door, so what do you expect?
1: <laughs> no, he did lock the door. They used the key to get in. Do you remember?
0: Oh yeah, oh yeah, they did. <laughs> your entire your, your
1: well, entire did. argument is a wash. That's it.
0: <laughs> in that case, he's even it's even more understandable that he's pissed off. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Stupid trash. Okay. Yeah. No. Even more understandable that he's pissed off.
1: Also, just speaking of the um, speaking of the cape. Every time like we get a substantially new crew like he wears the the cape <laughs> cuz he oh. wore he wore the cape in the Time Meddler. Yeah. I think he wore it in Did he wear it at the start of the arc? I can't remember. I know he's wearing it here.
0: I don't know. I can't remember.
1: Yeah. And he also he was also wearing it at the start of Unearthly Child, so.
0: <laughs> yeah. I do wonder. So the doctor makes a comment about how he thought he'd be alone. Again. Hmm. I do wonder if maybe he wanted to be alone for a while. It's been a hard few years for the poor chap, like. Yeah. I do wonder if maybe he wanted to be alone for a while after what seems like Dodo just upping and leaving for no fucking reason whatsoever.
1: Yeah, like, I I can get that because, like, maybe just feeling a small bit hurt.
0: Yeah, and maybe just wanting to protect yourself a little bit from getting attached to... Mm. More fucking humans.
1: That being said... um, Oh, no, sorry, you're gone. No, go on. I was going to say, that being said, though, he does warm up to the two of them pretty fast.
0: Oh, he does. And I think one of the reasons why that works so well is because of the setup we had in the War Machines. Yeah. He already knows them quite well, mm. having worked with them both in the previous story, so... I think you know you kind of get over that very quickly because we don't have to reintroduce ourselves. We already know who these people are, and it works quite well. Yeah. Um. One thing I had to make note of is when he says that he has a moral obligation to protect the town, and all I can think is, "Oh, Doctor, how far you have come! Previously, he wouldn't have given a monkey's tit what happened to these people." <laughs> And now he's refusing to leave because he has a... And he the way, he actually just says it outright. I have a moral obligation to protect them. I'm like, oh, Ian and Barbara would be so proud of you.
1: You've been reading my notes again, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's... um No. Um, it's actually the the only other time that we've seen this was Planet of the Giants. Sorry, Planet of Giants. When he refuses yep. to leave until... Uh, was it DN6? Is... um until the the whole process is destroyed
0: yeah one of the things that i love as well is that because ben and polly are quite new but again because we had that set up in the war machines that protective streak is there from the off Mm. you know disguising polly as a boy yeah and you know at the end making ben and polly go back to the tardis and he'll stay and try and hold off pike until blake turns up at reinforcements he has no issue with staying behind by himself yeah and he recognizes that you know maybe it's just a line to get ben and polly to go but it's it is a good point that if ben and polly stayed they could be used against him Hmm. whereas if they leave he's on his own but he can hold them off until blake arrives so very much you know very selfless in this story, do you know, and it comes across really, really well. And again, it shows I always like when, like, we have and th- this applies to all of Doctor Who, but I like when we have the new companions come in and we get this reaffirmation of who the Doctor is. Mm. Do you know, he has this moral code that he's going to stand by. He can be a little bit belligerent and angry at times, but he's also willing to sacrifice himself yeah. to save others. Do you know? so overall I thought it was a very strong performance from William Hartnell I thought it was very well done and yeah uh, nice showing from the Doctor this week how about you?
1: Um, yeah, I, I made the reference of you reading my notes again yeah, because you pretty much said everything that I was going to say um, no it's like this this story makes me sad for the simple fact of next week is his final story in Doctor Who yeah and he has such a strong performance here. He's got amazing chemistry with um, Michael Craze and Annika uh so Ben and Polly. Um, again, we get like, we said, like the moral code shining true, like that. And even like you know when he like uh, resets Longfoot's fingers, you know, just like it's just those small little bits making the squ- like m- his actions making the squire see the error of his ways like again very doctorish Pike this is an interesting thing right Pike is a very very bad customer very bad yeah right yet he seemed to have no fear of him but do you remember back into the myth makers he seemed to be very wary of Odysseus I I it's just like it's it's kind of strange I I don't know what it is
0: I'll get to that a little bit when we get to Pike
1: yeah now the only reason I can think of it off the uh, off the top of my head is that the circumstances surrounding the companions at the time are completely different um, yeah. But no, like, uh like yeah, he's standing up to pike his interactions with him, his craftiness you know with the tarot reading um everything about William Hartle in this story as the doctor is is the first doctor. it's great it's what it's what you like to see and um yes yeah, i'm just a small bit sad but at the same time i love it and it's actually again because going back which i'll get into the overall my impression of the story has changed after going through it for a more critical viewpoint so doctor and this one gets you know two thumbs up all the thumbs up
0: <laughs> yeah for for like bear in mind like this is this went out as the first story of season four so
1: yeah you know, so yeah, fantastic. Very
0: strong showing out of the gate.
1: Oh, absolutely. Like, yeah, because was it you know, the, the um? This is probably the strongest seasonal start we've had. Yeah, yeah,
0: I'd agree. I'd agree. So that's the Doctor. On to our companions. So we have Ben and Polly. Yes. So, what do you think of Ben in his first outing in the TARDIS?
1: So. I'm getting serious X-Files vibes off this <laughs> story because we've got Ben who is clearly the Scully of the duo and we have Polly, okay. Polly who's a bit of a moulder because Ben's whole thing is like, you know, it's almost very Dodoish. You know, ish was like, oh, you can't pull the wool over my eyes. You know, like we're, you know, yeah, we may have traveled somewhere, but we're not in the past or we're not in the future or anything like that. Um, And again, we're going back, we're seeing like that he's, we're getting the action man vibe off him again, mm. but it's, I, I I like his protective streak for both the Doctor and Polly. But yeah. I, I also like as well that when he, okay we're we're X amount away from the TARDIS, Polly you go on ahead. Still realise... like he still kind of says like you know he's weighing up the options of like you know she's got twenty what was it maybe twenty yards to go to the TARDIS. There's still a bit of danger there because we're still in an unknown cave system, but the Doctor is also. Uh, in danger so he's he's weighing up those options I, I I like that I like that in Ben also he's he knows his he's no know, he knows his limitations and he's very quick to mm-hmm. pick up on the plans of others and kind of put his own spin into it as well you know with the, the jailbreak scene so I think yeah. this I think this is a good uh, first showing for Ben
0: yeah I'd agree um, for me you know the one thing I had, to, the one thing that made me, there was two things that made me laugh. One made me giggle, and one just made me laugh my ass off.
1: Yeah.
0: The thing that makes me giggle is, um, I, I, I don't think I, I know what Ben's occupation is. Patty it was, is Ben in the navy? Because he never fucking mentions it. Only every other five minutes.
1: As a sailor. As a sailor. As a...
0: I really have to go back to barracks yeah. I'm never going to go back to barracks yeah. I have to go back to barracks oh god bless um,
1: <laughs> how long till the ship blows up <laughs> how long till the ship, <laughs> the ship how long does the planet blow up
0: <laughs> oh. um, no but seriously I think this is a very strong showing from Ben mm. similar to Dodo like you said you know, he fully acknowledges the fact that they moved Yeah, they're on a beach they were in London that's no problem the time travel bit, he's like, ah, come on, pull the other one. And, and I'm just like, how can you accept one and completely disconnect from the other <laughs> one? Um, but yeah, no, I think overall in the story, he is very strong and one of the things that I like is that he's very strong in support of the Doctor and Polly. Yeah. You know, Polly comes up with the idea for them to get out of the jail cell and Ben supports it and plays into it and he's the one that plays on um, Tommy. Yeah. You know, it probably came up with the idea, but it's Ben that you know really sells it. Yeah. You know, and he's he's a great sort of support for them, and yeah, like his protectiveness comes through very well. Um, he did potentially go to the Stevens School of randomly assaulting people. <laughs> However, there is context here where this guy came out of the wall. Yeah and they're framed for murder so maybe that context is allowed
1: and he's coming out of the wall in the place where the the murder victim was found yeah yeah so you know versus hey you we'll keep, we'll keep an eye on it <laughs> yeah
0: we'll keep an eye on it see if it see if it go, yeah. becomes a trend yeah but no like i said i completely agree with you you know very strong outing from ben you know yes he's the action man. But again, we kind of saw that set up last week. It's not Action Man for the sake of ego. It's Action Man because, whether it's because he's in the Navy or whether it's because it's just who he is as a person. It's that protective nature coming through. The other thing that made me laugh.
1: You said in the Navy, so
0: yeah. I know it is. (laughs) The other thing that made me laugh, and this actually made me laugh out loud, was was when he just turns to Polly. He's like, Polly, put the kettle on. (laughs) <laughs> it was so funny; it made me laugh so much.
1: I think their back and forth is going to be like in in the in the slower sections, you know, where there isn't that much imminent danger. I think their back and forth is going to be very interesting.
0: Yeah, because he still calls her things like Duchess and yeah. and all this kind of stuff, and like I just I said last week that my read on that is very much a sort of class divide thing.
1: Yeah. All c- but completely, purely completely.
0: out of humour. Yeah, It's not done as like, oh, look at her. She thinks she's better than us. It may have been yeah, at the very beginning in the club last time.
1: Which is why he refers to her as Duchess and not anything higher.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, we still get that playful banter from him, which is great. But yeah, I know when he just says, Polly, put the kettle on. I just, <laughs> I, I couldn't stop laughing. It was so funny. And I wonder if, like... Because you warned me that people had a bit of a weird read on Polly. Yeah. Of Ben and Polly's relationship and the way that Ben
1: treats mm. her. Yeah.
0: You, you kind of warned me about that last week. And there's something that comes up in next week's story to do with Polly and... Kettles. Hot beverages. <laughs> and I wonder if that line gets taken out of context a lot.
1: I th- Well, like a lot of stuff in, in Who, in the older stuff... A lot of stuff was taken out of context by modern audiences. And yeah. a, and as we've seen through these last 28 weeks... Uh, no. Like context is key to all these things. Because otherwise you are really throwing a negative light... On something that's actually positive.
0: Yeah. So for anyone who was reading Ben saying... Polly put the kettle on... As him degrading her... Or just saying like... Oh because she's the girl she has to make the cup of tea it's a nursery rhyme that I'm pretty sure everyone on the planet with the name Polly has had to deal with. Yep. As someone whose last name is Brady, I can tell you that if there is a song with your name in it, it will follow you to the ends of the earth. Yep. So, speaking of Polly, yeah. shall we move over to herself?
1: I think we should. So, the f- okay, first things first. Yes, Polly screams. Yes, she does. However, those screams are more than balanced out by her ingenuity and her bravery. Yeah. Polly is. So, like, I made before, I made the statement before about Barbara that yes, Barbara has the first proper scream in Doctor Who when she sees the Dalek for the first time.
0: Yeah.
1: However, it's that normal reactionary scream my uh our friend darren uh back when uh, i was in school with darren once came out of a room like it was a dark room he and he just went blah to me and i just went ah fuck it's just like that kind of scary type thing now he says i went into a higher pitch but you know he's not here to defend himself so fuck you darren (laughs) 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 Um, but it's that initial scare reaction it's not screaming for the sake of screaming um, it's what you do afterwards is what makes you the character that you are and here Polly reads into the the ideas of the time pretends to be a witch and then <laughs> stages like a very elaborate jailbreak where it's like Ben is like tap dancing to you know come up with a very good story for it so I think that is the the Polly that people need to know about it's the it's the crafty Polly the smart Polly
0: yeah I think the thing with Polly is that in many ways, I think of all the character, all the companions that we've had. Polly is probably the most stereotypically girly.
1: Yeah, no, I know. I no, I'd agree. in I'd agree. the way she
0: carries herself, in the way she speaks, in her interactions largely with Ben, like her reaction to the rat, and then being like, "Oh, I'm going to get some straw." No, wait, no. There's there's a rat in the straw. Ben, <laughs> you go get the yeah. straw, whatever. And that could probably come across as like incredibly girly, and like, "Oh my god, why did they make her such a stereotypical girl?" But it's like girls like that exist
1: yep also just after recently having watched it Henry Jones Senior in The Last Crusade is also terrified of rats <laughs>
0: yeah like yeah. it's their natural reactions I think what maybe makes them stand out a bit more with Polly is because she's so girly in general when you add those two things together hmm. it can come up as she's just uh, perils of Pauline screaming type yeah. person but no, I completely agree with you, like she is very fearful when leaving the TARDIS. So one of the things about Polly is that she vocalizes her fear. She says, yeah. I am afraid. Yeah. And it takes a lot of guts to admit when you're afraid and actually vocalise it out loud for everyone else to hear. But she gets over it fairly quickly, in fairness. Like she gets stuck into the story and she adapts fairly quickly to where they are. Like you you made the idea like Ben is the Scully so like Polly's like the molder in that dynamic, and yeah, she is very molder like in that. She adapts very quickly to the situation that she's in. Like I said, her ingenuity. Small correction. She said she pretends she's a warlock because one of the things that I like, and now this is a little bit hard to tell with the telly snaps, but no one figures out Polly's a girl.
1: No, they don't. But I thought Ben says that they are in service to a powerful warlock.
0: Yeah, but they said that they're apprentices, so that would make her yeah, a warlock. Um, yeah, yeah. But also, a witch you, being a feminine thing, yeah. they don't—no one figures out that she's a girl. Yeah. Um. Which I actually—I was—I was waiting for. Oh, the pirates are going to figure out that she's a girl, and we're going to have. That. That, <laughs> topic that Trish doesn't like coming up again, and we didn't. And I was pleasantly surprised that we didn't. Right through to the very end everyone calls her a boy yeah which i actually thought was quite good i completely agree that she's so strong-willed when she's faced with the squire and cherub and pike again Mm -hmm. it's just this absolute fearlessness when it comes to people people she can manage rats not so much people she can manage
1: (laughs) and even at the end like when she dives into the fight to help ben take on the pirate
0: yeah like and she gets again, like I think like my last one she gets right stuck in there in her own rescue. Like she bites your man's hand. she jumps on his back. You know, yeah. yeah, she needed Ben to come and help, but like she was doing okay by herself.
1: yeah, you know? And like it's, as we kind of said uh, last Wednesday when we were talking about Dodo's rambling is that Polly is feels like the character that Dodo was meant to be,
0: yes, very much so,
1: but we now have Polly. And I think, much like Ben, for a first adventure setting, Polly has made a really good showing of herself.
0: Yeah, I'd highly agree. For a first travel in the TARDIS, very strong showing from Polly. Very well done.
1: So there was no real um, story-based companions this time around because Longfoot doesn't survive one episode. And Blake isn't there long enough to warrant being a discussable character. Yeah so we're going to move straight on to the villains this time around guys and for the villains we have the smugglers of cooper and the squire and we also the pirates of cherub and pike so what way do you want to do it do you want to do
0: i think if we do (laughs) um the minor (laughs) villains and then the major villains. so the minor villains are ironically the smugglers (laughs) the titular group are actually the minor (laughs) villains in this story so that is Cooper and the Squire. Yeah. So you can take your pick on which of those you want to discuss first.
1: Uh, So I think what we should do, like, we go with the, the least kind of antagonistic of the two. and Or the lesser villain of the two, I suppose. And I would go with Cooper. Because I know mm-hmm. that uh, the Squire comes good in the end. But in terms of the hierarchy, Cooper seems to be uh, lower than him. So I get the impression, right? that because he's got a very shoot first mentality he might have been the one to coax the squire into doing the smuggling racket
0: i can see that i can see him and longfoot or whatever his name is
1: yeah
0: you know discussing things and him being sort of like I'll go on, you know and maybe strong arming him into it to get him to to do it um i i can i can definitely see that with him
1: yeah and uh, I'd be, And based on that as well, I would love to have seen, had Cherub not got, inter, got involved, where the confrontation between the Squire and Cooper would have actually ended up.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: I, I, he does seem to have that kind of weird kind of pirate type code, you know, where it's like, you know, the doctor, you have betrayed me. However, I let you live because you did me a solid. And then <laughs> it's, yeah. Uh, yeah through my, like, guidelines and actual rules but you know <laughs> <laughs> what was your read on him
0: my read on cooper is that he's a sneaky sod oh
1: yeah
0: he's the type of guy who will take any opportunity to make a little bit of coin for himself yes and i'll be honest like i knew nothing about this story going in i was slightly concerned that when we're talking about the smugglers i thought we were going to be getting into a sort of smugglers slash slavers situation. I, I was slightly afraid that was what was going to happen. Hmm. Do you know? Um, I was thankful that I didn't. But yeah, I think Cooper is very much... He's out for himself. But the thing is, Cooper is a small fish. Yes. And he very quickly recognizes that he is a small fish. His reaction when he realizes that he has just, of his own volition, rode out to Pike's ship is the epitome of someone who thought that they were a total badass yeah realizing that they've been playing at the kiddies table this entire time yeah which i think makes him interesting that he at least has enough self-awareness to realize oh shit i i took one step too far that i shouldn't have taken
1: (laughs) so how about his partner in crime
0: the squire um my read on the squire was that he's a man who likes his power and who uses it to his advantage yes that could mean throwing someone that you don't know and therefore you distrust in prison because you feel like the evidence presented to you justifies it yeah. do you know um, they describe it that like the squire is the law but he is a law unto himself he makes yeah. up the law it's whatever he wants it to be You know, when Pike and Cherub are going to be helping him with his smuggling racket, he doesn't even pretend to listen to Polly when, you know, what are the odds that she would come in and randomly accuse some guy of Mm. taking the doctor? Like, that makes no sense. But because it benefits him, he doesn't even attempt to listen to it. Yeah, It's just like, no, I've made up my mind. You know, these are trusted men and these are, you know, upstanding merchants you're just a nobody i don't know who you are and you know again you know it's him sort of using his power for whatever he wants in terms of him being a villain i think it's it's similar to stories we've had before he's a villain to our heroes yeah but i wouldn't really call him a villain in context of the story he's not a villain to his people he doesn't hurt anybody no he just so happens to have a smuggling business,
1: <laughs> and see that's it is that like um I was at at the end right does his redemption make up for like the smuggling ring and the false imprisoning of the travelers it doesn't but I
0: wouldn't even really call it a redemption, do you know
1: well I like, in you know, the sense of you know he tries to save the doctor you know by distracting Pike long enough, for, you know Blake to like so it's sort of like um but i I think it's a redemption in the sense of he realizes that the Doctor also has the well-being of the people under his jurisdiction at heart. Yeah. So I I, I would say redemption and that side of things.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would consider it more just the completion of his character. Yeah. Because we hadn't seen what he was like with his people other than Cooper, so I would just consider it be that completion of his character development. Yeah. But I can see how you'd read it as a sort of redemption arc. Well,
1: one thing I would kind of say is that, like, the only non-smuggler based character that we have get any read on the surroundings from is tom Mm. and tom never seems to exhibit fear at the dimension of the uh, the squire or he doesn't say like you know you don't get any impression of malice
0: yeah
1: from of the squire from tom um so yeah like uh, as yeah, i can kind of see the whole thing about he's only a villain in terms of the story not for the people around him like he's not the evil lord that needs to be overthrown by the end of the story
0: exactly but there is an evil lord who needs to be overthrown at the end of the story <laughs> so how do we move on to our main villains our pirates so we yes. have Pike and Cherub so continuing on our same vein if we do Cherub first yeah he has no issue with stabbing someone in the back mm-hmm. repeatedly <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> uh, the way I describe Cherub is that he's kind of your stereotypical pirate yeah but done well yes you know it's not a caricature no. of a pirate it's everything you would expect from a pirate's character but delivered quite well you know he has some level of intelligence which often stereotypical pirate characters are missing in that you know he can play along with pike and then you know playing it up to the squire and stuff like that he he doesn't give anything away um but at the same time he's your stereotypical pirate you know <laughs> Gold and murder and pillaging and yeah. yeah,
1: like every time that Cherub is involved in a scene, I get very uneasy because he's capable. Yeah, and uh, as I've mm-hmm. often said, like the, the villains that make like you know that are on screen that are capable. They make me very uneasy when they're on the screen because it's like mm-hmm. unlike some other bumbling villains we've ever come across, uh, the Morocks from Space Museum being a prime example. Like he's just like there's a there's a good chance he's going to do some damage to our heroes so that threat is ever present so I think he's really well done in that regards
0: yeah I would agree definitely
1: also like he's like like his aim like I know that they use the same clip over and over again of him throwing the knife but like but my god the man's got some great aim <laughs> <laughs> um, and like the fact as well like that he realises that you know he has to use every underhanded trick that he knows to try and fight Pike. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, again, it's just he's a very interesting character in the sense of his competency as opposed to when he could very easily be a caricature. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And then we have the main man himself, Captain Pike.
1: Yes. Captain of the USS Enterprise. Oh, wait, no, sorry. Wrong Pike.
0: <laughs> 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 so you you mentioned earlier about how the Doctor... Doesn't seem as afraid of Pike. As he was of Odysseus. Yeah. And my read on that is. The doctor says it himself right. Pike. Presents himself in this. Gentleman pirate captain. Facade. Yeah. That is something the doctor can play around with. Odysseus was just. Belligerent and argumentative from the off. I had no idea what he was going to do. Whereas Pike, while obviously we see later on that that gentlemanly like behavior goes away whenever he wants it to, mm. the doctor can at least have discussions with him on that level that he could never have with Odysseus. Because Odysseus saw him as an imposter, which he mm. was, and you know had no time for him. Whereas with Pike, it's different because there is that gentlemanly thing. And the doctor even says it himself, like, you are a gentleman. I think that's why there isn't the same level of fear, even though, I mean, a pirate with a reputation is never going to be good.
1: No. And a pirate with a reputation that he can back up.
0: Yeah. Like, the reactions we get from Cooper and from the Squire when they realize who he is. And what this will mean for their village or whatever. Yeah. That sort of highlights to you that you know this gentleman pirate is a pirate.
1: Like, I know you haven't seen it, but there's a there's a real sort of like you know I work for Kaiser Soze type fucking thing from The Usual Suspects, and it's like oh <laughs> Jesus Christ, not him. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I really liked Pike um, in this in this story in the sense like he's got the reputation that he can back up. He is also got a brain on him. He's a, he's able to yeah. manipulate people, so it's like. I would say the bastard gentleman pirate as opposed to the gentleman pirate. Like, I can't imagine him, you know, like, making many maidens swoon, you know, <laughs> that type of thing. <laughs> um, but like, he's just, like, he's able to manipulate people so well. And he's, like, his strategy is fantastic. Just everything about him is great up until he gets the gold. And then I don't know if it's necessarily he's a trope himself or is it just the trope of the curse of a pirate py- of a uh of a, a notorious pirates uh, buried treasure because he seems to lose all focus of reality once he gets his hand on the gold
0: yeah i wonder if they were just sort of playing into that motif do you know yeah. like similar to like you know it happens a pirate treasure you know a dragon's treasure you know yeah. that type of thing i wonder if they were just playing into that a little bit with this um yeah. But, like, it it makes him an interesting character because, you know, you made a joke about <laughs> Muppet's Treasure Island earlier on. Like, Long John Silver goes through a similar thing. Yeah. Where he will do anything for the gold. That's it. Like, he plays very cool, very collected the whole way through. Yeah. But then he'll take so much gold that he'll sink his rowboat. <laughs> Do you know?
1: This this vessel is indeed safe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I, I actually want to see that crossover now with Doctor Who and, you know, the <laughs> Mr. Samuel Arrow. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, like, I, again, just... From a story that could have been very easily a piss take of stuff. Yeah it was this was more akin to maybe the aztecs than it would be
0: the gunfighters
1: the gunfighters yeah
0: so we've gone through the doctor the companions and the villains and now it is time to give our thoughts on the story as a whole so paddington i will hand over to you what were your overall thoughts on The Smugglers?
1: So, first time I, I watched this, it was sort of a throwaway story for me because I was too focused on this, the following story, the one that's going to be coming next mm. week. However, like with many things, going back and taking a much more in-depth look at this story, I really, really liked it. I thought it was great. Uh, as I said throughout the, this episode, it's the strongest season opener we've had. Because like, like, what have we had? We've had the Planet of Giants and we've had uh, Galaxy 4. This is head and shoulders above those two in my estimation. Uh, well, had Planet of Giants actually gone according to script, then maybe it might have yeah. been a bit better. But yeah, th- so, but anyway, that was that. Um, I love the new campa- uh, Companions. <laughs> I was going to say companions, but no, <laughs> that comes later. Uh, I love the new Companions. Ben and Polly, I think they're a really good dynamic. They're really... Bringing out the best of your know, previous companions, uh, Hartnell again, you know, towering presence in this story. Great supporting cast in terms of the villains. As I said, there isn't that many supporting characters, so the Doctor again, just like, his cutting, bullshitting skills, compassion the whole way throughout. And the combat, as I, I feel like I just have to say it again, the combination of this TARDIS crew just feels right. Mm. It fe- it feels good so this story for me is a four like, as much as I did like it I it's not in the realms of getting above the four for me at this point in time but I have faith that you know the ne- the next uh, couple of stories with this crew well I know that next week is the last one with Hartnell but whatever happens afterwards I think Ben and Polly can usher in a new era but anyway
0: very good for me I think overall the story was good yeah i can see why people were concerned about the level of violence though mm. um usually that type of thing is either out of shot as in you'd see someone going to stab but like the body blocking you wouldn't actually be able to see it or it's done completely off screen so i can get people's concern about that it is a bit more full-on than what we've seen in the past mm. um, is it the best historical episode no, no, we've had the Aztecs and the Romans, so <laughs> it's, it's never going to win that award. It is, however, very good and so far above the gunfighters, which is yeah. the worst historical story ever.
1: Yeah.
0: Worst story ever, maybe. Um, we see our new crew working well together. That's always great to see. And I'm glad that we don't spend too much time on the, oh my God, we travel through time and space part. Mm. The travelling through time bars, yeah, I get that Ben takes a little while to cotton on to the fact that, okay, this is actually where they are. But, it's not as big of a pain in the butt as it was with Stephen, because mm. Ben's first piece of evidence is the, um, what's his name? I'm saying Longbottom. His name isn't Longbottom, that's <laughs> level. <Neville. It's, laughs> the the Longfoot. <laughs> Longfoot. Okay. <laughs> it's Long something. Um... Ben's first interaction is obviously Longfoot. Yeah. And after interacting with Longfoot, Ben kind of accepts that this is what it is. Yeah. Whereas Stephen was presented with a Viking helmet from the off and Saxon's running around and he still didn't believe it. Yeah. So I'm glad that we didn't spend too long on that because like, particularly with how much companion turnover we've had recently mm. that would have gotten really old really fast Yeah. if we'd had to go through all of that again. Um, so i'm really glad we didn't get to do that no to yeah think? i
1: was gonna say like um <laughs> very kind of apt right it, that kind of mentality it would feel like a lot like the assassin's creed series of video games where it's like the same introduction to like how to play the game over and over again until ironically um uh, assassin's creed 4 which deals with pirates during this time period <laughs> you have all the skills already so yeah <laughs> it seems pretty cool I have a question to ask you, and i i yeah. i I should have brought it up in the trivia section, right? And I've seen some comments based on the character of Jamaica, yeah, Jamaica, and with the a sort again, it was in term, viewed in terms of a ra- the racial context that this story was kind of racist towards the character of Jamaica because he is he's he's a black character named Jamaica who's very superstitious. Did you get anything of that kind of sense in it?
0: There's yes and no yeah it's a stereotype that is still done today do you know um that you have people from the caribbean islands you know are very superstitious and things like that and you know having the one black character and I think one of the first black characters we've seen in Who with a speaking part. Yes. You know, be reduced to that stereotype. I can see why it maybe bothers people. It didn't, but uh, this is just, this isn't excusing something, but it was quite common in the sixties and seventies, and maybe even into the eighties, for that to be the way if you wanted the character. To be the superstitious character, you make it the black character, whatever. Yeah. I've also seen some concern that he's he is like I said, I think he's possibly the first black character with a speaking role. Yes. Like an actual full-on role, Mm -hmm. and he dies. Yeah. Um, which again is a common issue with casting black characters is that oftentimes you cast a black character sometimes to fill. A stereotype, like in this case. Mm -hmm. Sometimes to fulfil a racial quota or whatever. And then you kill off the black character. It's done in every scary movie ever. It's done in... It's parodied in scary movie, I think. Yeah. The token black guy is the first guy to die or whatever the case would be. Mm. I... Yeah. I I didn't see much about it when I was looking it up. But I can understand why people would be upset about it.
1: Yeah. Because, like... like, Again, like, I... I was in the mindset of like well it is but it isn't because they're portraying a character that was like is an accurate depiction of of Caribbean characters of that time probably yeah did the character need to be in it other than just to serve as a body count probably not no like um, they could have just as very easily had like a normal cabin boy didn't need maybe need to have a cabin boy they could just have had like a random pirate and like I suppose like there is the kind of those things like that we saw when we discussed the Celestial Toymaker. It's as progressive as Doctor Who is in the nineteen sixties, it still falls guilt still falls prey to some of the not so progressive things that were at that time as well. Yeah. And I think it's
0: ma- progressive in the nineteen sixties. Yeah. Yeah. And what they deemed progressive and what we deem progressive are vastly different. Vastly different.
1: But at least we could say that I think the progressiveness far as outshines the, everything, the other maybe modern viewpoints of the show. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I would think so. Yeah. So for me, overall, my score on this was a 3.75. Mm. Uh, it didn't quite hit the four for me. That was just a personal thing. Yeah. Um, it's a well-written story. It's presented really well. I just personally, like. I don't know if I'll go back and watch it again. I'll put it that way.
1: I think I might, uh, like, it wouldn't be, like, given, obviously, a selection of stories, I'd have to see what the selection mm-hmm. is. I may, It may not be my first pick, but, you know, there might be nights some night where I'm like, you know, I kind of want to watch Pirates. <laughs> I know, I'll watch these guys.
0: Yeah, I I don't think I would be like that. Maybe if they animated it, maybe.
1: Yeah, which they will hopefully do someday.
0: Yeah, fingers crossed. I, I would maybe watch it, watch it then. Um, But, you know, overall, it's a solid story. If, if, if you're someone who's into Pirates and Pirate stories and stuff, then, yeah, it's like... Yeah, it's a no-brainer that this is going to be a good story for you so yeah for me it was a 3.75
1: that is the smugglers over and out of the way with guys
0: it is indeed
1: so again uh, like we said at the top of the show our socials are there and we'd love to hear your thoughts on it and what have we got coming next week trish like we haven't already said about four or five times on the episode. <laughs>
0: Yeah, let's do the script a bit now. Join us next week. Uh, no, but seriously. um, Next week, we'll be discussing the final story of William Hartnell's era as the Doctor. The Tenth Planet.
1: So, have tissues and everything ready to go. Have all your Doctor Who memorabilia. <laughs> Not Lenny. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and we will see you on Monday, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs>